Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Market cycles and investments take time and the good ones take time. So you need to have a good structure on the asset that allows you to go through different market cycles and different troubles for the asset to get to where you want it to be. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Several listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Slocum Reed, and today I'm here with AJ Osborne. AJ is based in Eagle, Idaho. He is CEO and founder of Cedar Creek Capital. They own or operate self-storage, which includes having done ground-up development and conversions. The current portfolio consists of over $300 million in assets under management, over 3 million net rentable square feet, and over 10,000 doors. AJ, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're currently focused on? Yeah, so I'm what you would call a true nerd because I do one thing. I have a lot of businesses around that one thing, but we go very, very deep on it. So been in the self-storage world since the early 2000s. So we were in it before any real estate investors knew about it or did anything with it. And we went through the Great Recession and we touch every single component of this business, meaning that we have a architecture firm. We have a debt brokerage firm. We have our own property management firm. We have our tech company. We do feasibility studies, the tech property management system software. We also have national branding and we're founding members of the largest co-op and self-storage of the world. And I have the number one best-selling book on self-storage and the new versions coming out here at the end of July, first part of August, which is a very large book that goes into the history of storage and opportunities. But I also have the largest self-storage podcast. We started all this and we're doing it in self-storage. It was the redheaded stepchild of commercial real estate. So it's interesting over the last two decades, what has happened. And I think a lot of people have really wanted more context and what's going on in the self-storage world, how do we get into it, and how did it get here? Because it is the newest of all commercial real estate asset classes. So we are very much a industry participant, 
and builder. I sit on boards. We really focus in on this realm and we've compiled lots of data and try to share it openly because we are very involved in trying to make the industry better. I think it provides the best opportunity for anyone in commercial real estate, especially if you're beginners, to build and succeed. But it also does have dangers that it has not seen in the past. So we try to be very transparent. I am not a cheerleader. In fact, two, two and a half years ago, I wrote the what I called the self-storage bubble which was a whole entire article, white paper that I had a thread on it, which backed the self-storage bubble synopsis with data and walked through a lot of people, what was happening in the self-storage industry two and a half years ago and why it was going to come to an end and what that would result in, which we're seeing today. So although we're big components in it, we're big proponents of it. I do want to make sure that it's known that I'm not a cheerleader. Why? Because there was a lot of self-storage cheerleaders that came out and it started a lot of narratives that were totally false about the industry. And we started to hear lots of things like self-storage is recession-proof and all sorts of stuff that makes my blood curdle. So we ended up having over the last few years, a lot of cheerleaders in our industry because at the time, 60% of all private equity firms in self-storage had only come to be in five years. And during that five years where the most money had ever been raised for self-storage and the majority of private equity firms were that new, we had an average occupancy of three or four of those years of 96%. Now, why is that important? Because prior to that, the highest annual average occupancy the United States had seen was 86% and rates were going up at 15 to 20% a year. So there was all this new firms and all these people that had jumped into the industry right at what was almost a peak. It really was. And it, it skewed things and people. And lots of people had, I think, a very skewed idea of self-storage performance and what that means. So I try to be balanced. I try to be very open about what we do, why we do it, why I support it. But at the same time, not just be a blind cheerleader of an asset class that's rah, 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 but really look at all aspects of it, which we have a unique ability to do and to talk to people about storage and different performance cycles and how to protect yourself from downsides instead of saying that they don't exist. AJ, if the peak for self-storage, at least in this market cycle, if the peak was a few years ago, what has happened since then? That's a great question. During the fall, we had the largest drop in occupancy and rates that the industry had really seen since 2008. And the industry is nothing like it was in 2008. It's a totally different industry. We are now starting to see large companies that are restructuring debt. In some markets, we've seen rents that are 30% down year over year. Now, in other markets, it's pretty stable. But one of the leading drivers from this was the development cycle. So you have to understand in storage prior to 2008, you couldn't really get financing very easily. Banks didn't understand it. They didn't like it. These were short-term contracts that were risky in their viewpoints. They thought in a recession, everybody is just going to stop paying their storage units and they're not going to buy stuff. So banks didn't like storage because they didn't know how to underwrite it. Plus there was no institutional grade management. So it was like, if the bank ended up with that asset, well, who's going to run it? Bad proposition for banks. They don't like that at all. They're a really bad position to be in. So because of that, prior to 2008, there had been one year 
that it hit a billion dollars in development, which was crazy. And that was in 2006 or right at 2007. A billion dollars had been constructed in the United States. After the Great Recession, two things happened that changed the industry forever. First, institutional grade management supported by a REIT came out through via extra space. And the industry now had models they could test off of a long-term debt cycle or a credit crisis that happened in 2008. So now banks could manage funds and capital allocators could manage using an institution. They could also benchmark and they could review models that had been tested in a credit crisis, both of which didn't happen prior. This opened up the floodgates for investors to come into self-storage. Now, self-storage is the lowest defaulting asset class in 26 years. It is also the highest performing commercial real estate asset and lowest defaulting commercial real estate asset class during that time. But that is a skewed number. And the reason why it's skewed Maybe you don't. I don't know. So I guess I'm asking, what was the average LTV? Do you even know? 2008 for a multifamily? Do you know what the average LTV was? I don't. That's a great question. I wasn't in the game yet in 08, yeah. but I'm sure it was lower than what preceded it when we came yeah. out of the recession. So like the buildup though is probably high, right? It's probably like 90%, yeah. 95% yep. because that's where most asset classes were. Self-storage was under 40 percent. And the reason being, because banks didn't want to do it. In fact, more than the majority of the assets were debt-free because you couldn't get very good financial products or terms at the time. So when you have a credit crisis and we went into the great recession, self-storage did better than other real estate asset classes and had a really low default rate. Well, they also had virtually no debt. So the low default rate was at least in part a result of supply and demand factors, but also has to do with how little debt and how low debt there was on those properties. That's correct. So because of that, I bought a lot of bankrupt properties or properties that were getting restructured that were mainly all from developers at the time that we bought and were turning around. But when you came out from that, all these golden gooses of real estate had just been slaughtered through 2008. And self-storage emerged victorious. So what preceded that after 2016 was every single year after that was $5 billion in development. Now, remember, just a few years prior, the highest ever recorded was a billion. Every single year after 2015 was $5 billion plus in development for years. That's a magnitude that, once again, you didn't get $5 billion in five years prior to that. So to go seven years of $5 billion annually, it blew away everything we had perceived as what would happen. This started to result in lower occupancies and rents in 2018, but the industry had a horrible savior, which was COVID. And I don't know how much of the trillions of dollars the government printed went to storage, but I got to tell you, it was a lot. So COVID was the biggest boom for self-storage in the world. It saved an industry that was at the end of a debt cycle, frankly, that was starting to just feel the pains of that. And the reason being is interest rates dropping to 2.5% made the housing market boom, which boomed storage. 45 plus percent of our customers come from moving, as well as the inability for people to do traditional activities, drove them to do things like remodel homes, 
their normal supply chains for businesses had been disrupted. They started using storage for that. And people started doing outdoor activities. Occupancies skyrocketed and rates skyrocketed along with it. Now, this is the bubble. And when we were showing people, you can actually see in the charts and everything, the actual peak of it. It's going, it just peaks out. And then last fall, drop. Occupancies drop, rates drop. The reason it's so drastic is a change in consumer behavior. The reason is, like I like to tell people, and this is what we talked about in the self-storage bubble that was so important for people to realize that high inflation meant high interest rates, which people said, yeah, but when you get into those periods, people need storage because they need to downsize. And I say, yeah, but you're under the assumption that people are going to downsize and walk away their house when over 95% of all homeowners had 30-year mortgages at under 4% interest rates and their incomes kept rising. So the worst thing for storage is what occurred. And that was stagnation, meaning that houses stopped trading. People didn't lose them. People didn't move. The movement of the housing market froze completely. And then you lost all the free money. Inflation was driving up people's cost. So they stopped buying toys. They stopped doing all those things that they'd done prior. And the great moving machine of America stalled out. And that directly corresponds, obviously, with demand for self-storage. So that then in turn took place, which that was felt differently across the United States. Areas that were more oversupplied, had new inventory been built, and had had astronomical run-ups in rates, they felt that much more severe, obviously, than other areas did. But on average, nationally, I think it was the either only second to 2008. Outside that, the largest drop in occupancy and rates that storage has seen. Big change. So starting with the Great Recession, correct my summary where I'm wrong. You have supply lagging behind demand, demand catching up in huge ways starting in 2015, 2016. The pendulum swung too heavily on the supply side. You started to feel it in 2018. However, consumer behavior changed so drastically with COVID that the glut of new supply was absorbed by temporary changes in the ways that people were using self-storage resulting from the pandemic. And now that we get to say that the pandemic is over, consumer behavior is returning to normal and we're realizing how oversupplied we are. 100%. And like I try to make sure people understand is we're having a retreat to a normal cycle. So self-storage is coming off this huge bubble and it's just returning to a normal, but that normal is substantially lower than where we were at in the bubble. It's not that it's bad. The industry isn't collapsing, but what had happened in one of the biggest changes for self-storage was that in five years, private equity and newcomers into the storage market was crazy. In fact, you can actually see the shift in capital away from the REITs and the top 100 operators to private equity and to new money. They started buying up things at massive high valuations under an idea, I think, that they couldn't fail and that rates would always go up. Now, large operators in the top 100, which I'm in, and the REITs actually became the lowest purchasers over this period and time frame of assets. It switched. 
And this also marks an end of a cycle, right? Where the actual people doing and buying it, they stop buying as much and it moves over. Their buying habits also changed. But what it did then is all this new money rushing into the industry to buy it that had no experience and had priced things as if they would never come down or that cap rates would never change, which I actually had someone tell me that cap rates would not rise in third and fourth tier markets because apparently that doesn't happen anymore, which that's ludicrous, but that was what they were doing and saying. And this is big money. This is small money. And that part right there was the danger. It's not that the self-storage bubble or anything. It's that people bought at astronomical valuations at two and a half percent interest rates. And the deal doesn't work if the cap rate goes from four or three to five and interest rates rise, which that all exactly happened. Cap rates are rising in self-storage and people that are refinancing or having to sell, they never projected this in their models that we would be in a time like that, which is silly and should have never happened. They should have never been doing it and easily avoidable. And this is where it comes down to, I think, why a lot of assets actually fell. It's not because the assets fell. It's because of the structure placed on the asset fails. And with storage, I think it got to a point where it was priced to perfection and that had never happened in storage before. We'd never experienced anything like that. So a in lot of that the- run up, AJ, were you in Cedar Creek a net buyer or net seller? of self-storage. Oh, I don't sell. And I'm always a net buyer because I don't buy predicated on markets, meaning that I don't expect the market to make me. So our overall strategy is I'm finding really underperforming assets relative to its current market. And that spread is my entire return. And I look for isolated assets that don't have very much supply. We buy them and we hold them for the long term and we lock in our overall major liabilities like interest rates, everything else. So two and a half years ago, we financed our entire portfolios out to 2029. Now we bought, but our buying behavior changed completely. So we moved out of all the big growing markets that had really been benefited where everybody was running to from the migrations. And we actually changed and went to markets that had not had that and also had not received new supply like those markets had. So I call that a rate runway. I moved to markets where the rate runway was really long because the price per square foot had to lift in order to hit the strike price of new supply coming on board. That gives me a long runway and I can buy operators that were really poor, turn the facility around, have large cash flowing margins. So whether the market goes up or down, meaning cap rates go from five to seven or eight, I don't care. That doesn't bother me at all. And I lock in those interest rates, so I'm not worried about those changes. So I'm a net buyer always. I'm buying this year. I'll be buying next year because we look at storage like a business and we expect our assets to be great today, incredible, ongoing, but it has to be on measurable inputs, meaning I don't expect the market to make me. So it's not like, oh, we buy and I'm sure the market will make real estate be worth more. That's not how we operate. It's a very value-add, measurable system that we implore. That's why we survived 2008 and didn't lose any properties and didn't have any of those problems that a lot of other people did because of how we buy and run our businesses. We weren't at risk. That led us to be a larger net buyer after 2009, which allowed us to continue buying. And that's what we're doing right now. So our latest fund is an opportunistic fund, which we're getting deals that are seller financed, that are non-recourse, we're putting 25% down, that are 35% under market rates, 
that traditionally going out to the market, you can't do because banks aren't going to loan, aren't going to underwrite it. So they're left with little options. So we like to take opportunities of times like this to get very creative, be a net buyer, but not just across the board, be a net buyer of very specific assets that have upside that is exaggerated during these times. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you tired of spending hours managing your rental properties? Inago is here to simplify your life as a landlord or property owner with their free property management software. With Inago, you can say goodbye to complex and costly solutions. Inago is designed with simplicity in mind, focusing on the features that matter to you. From tenant screening and lease signing to rent collection and work order management, Inago has got you covered. They offer a seamless interface and dedicated support representatives to assist you in every step of the way. Join thousands of satisfied landlords and start streamlining your property management tasks today with Inago. Plus, you'll get a $25 Amazon gift card just for using Inago. Visit Inago.com forward slash best ever to get started and reclaim your time and sanity. That's I-N-N-A-G-O.com forward slash best ever. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. For the sake of pivoting, the conversation, AJ, allow me to overgeneralize. You buy properties experiencing distress, whether that be physical, financial distress, distress regarding the circumstances of the owner, which are very likely right now debt distress. And because of your operating savvy, your scale, your experience, you're able to make those properties perform. Outside of the distress factors outside of looking for the lower occupancy rates, the below market rents, and outside of looking for sellers experiencing an acute distress that would be alleviated by selling the asset. Outside of all of the distress factors, what is it or where is it that you're targeting your acquisitions right now? Call it the end of Q2 2023. That's a great question. Right now, our targets for our acquisition, we are very sensitive to supply. So first of all, we do not believe the economy is turning around and we're catching it at a bottom. So I don't time markets. I want to make sure that's very, very clear. Hence the reason why I'm a buyer all the time. I don't time markets, but my money usually does, meaning that it's just predicated on yield. So I don't think that markets are going to be better moving into next year. So we're going to go into a market that's going to just get this massive uptick. So that's not how our buying decisions work. We are very interested in long-term growth rates. 
that usually we are priced out of. So I'm very interested in markets that over the last three years I couldn't go to because there was no yield and there was a lot of risk at that time or the last few years where now everybody's running away from, we can look and get good assets that are long-term benefiting. So we are mostly concentrated in the Midwest, Southwest, and the Northwest, largely. We are very interested in the Southeast, and we continue to be interested in the regions that we are in. We want to see, generally speaking, very long-term trends. And we're looking at micro supply and demand. And when we have properties that meet those requirements and an operator that doesn't need to be in distress, but just doesn't operate at our level, we snatch them up and we buy them. Now, obviously that can come in all shapes and sizes, but generally speaking, we're looking at 60 plus thousand net rentable square feet. We want gross potential revenue to be 400,000 plus. And we are looking within regions that we already are in, or we're looking in regions that we may be entering now, like the Phoenix metro area, which we had not been able to enter in over the last few years just because the yield didn't work for us, as well as other markets like that, that we view that this is a great opening and we're having realistic conversations with owners as opposed to just pie in the sky stuff. It doesn't mean they're distressed, but it just means that we have access to better opportunities than we had as far as it's just not crazy priced. That's very helpful. I have one more question, AJ, before we transition this episode. I've been a host of this podcast for about a year and a half now, and I interviewed some self-storage investors very early on. I heard more so at the end of 21 and early 22. Those are the interviews that are giving me the compulsion to ask this question, though I've heard a similar sentiment repeated since then. I don't know that I've heard you bring this up specifically, although we've talked about supply and demand, and we've talked about $5 billion a year in new development. When I have asked the question in the past, where to look to buy or where to look to break into the market with a smaller asset, for a listener or or me, considering our first self-storage property, almost everyone I've asked has cautioned or at least said, put it in your due diligence to figure out how much more supply can be added to the area soon. Of course, look at what's being developed currently, but also look at the barriers to entry for new self-storage in that area prior to considering purchasing in the area. Is that a major factor for you now in your purchasing decisions? Well, let me put it like this. I have a saying that goes, you could be the smartest self-storage operator, most powerful in the world, and buy in a market that will be oversupplied and you will fail. You could be the dumbest self-storage operator and investor and buy in a market that is undersupplied and be outrageously successful. So it is the first line that we care about. Everything else is mute if we think there will be new added supply due to either future plans, zoning requirements, all of those things in an area. We generally don't want to risk it. Now, if we know there's supply and there may even be fill-up troubles, if we can see a run rate on that that we could get out, great. But we're very, very sensitive to that because the number one thing that kills self-storage is self-storage. So 
it's a very easy asset class to overbuild in. Low barriers of entry, low cost, and compared to other commercial real estate assets, a lot of people can just go jump into it and it's a build it and they will come mentality. So that is a very big concern and something we analyze in depth on. In your due diligence, how is it that you analyze for future supply potential? So future supply potential for self-storage is a combination of two things. So we have what I would call the near-term supply. So we can actually go, we work with the city and we say what applications have been sent in or approved for self-storage to be built. And we will then look through that. We'll see. Then we ask where are the areas within the city that the city wants, allows, approves self-storage to be built. Now, who owns those parcels of land? What are the future plans with them? So when we're working with the cities, I want to see, first and foremost, what's already permitted and approved. The next is who on lands and who is submitting and who has plans to do it. And then third is what areas are zoned and what areas does the city want storage to go into and what areas do they not where they say, this isn't zoned, we will not rezone, or we will not issue permits in this area for storage. So that gives me more of a short-term future, mid-term future, and then more of a long-term future and planning for storage. Now, at the end of the day, I'm not looking at net zero in a city ever to be built. That doesn't make sense. Where that really comes into play is the overall current demand. So if you're in a weak demand environment that you're buying into, it just takes one even small facility to screw the market up. And it takes a big facility and a small market can just obliterate it for years. So it's a measure of how much it can absorb and where those potential new assets are going and what that absorption rate would look like. Generally speaking though, if I'm buying and they have a big facility coming in in a five mile radius, I'm going to either not do it or be very weary of doing it. Now, if it already exists, meaning the new supplies there and they're in fill-up mode, I can analyze that. I can figure that out. So I'm okay with that. Hold on. You're okay with new supply that's in fill-up mode. You're okay with going into that market or you're okay with analyzing it? I'm okay going into it, meaning that I'm going to buy a storage facility and there's another storage facility that's already opened up, but they're in fill-up mode. I can look at that facility and I can say, all right, I know exactly the units, the exact square footage, and I can see the asset that I'm buying, the new one. I can see, has this one already been affected? Will it be affected? And then I can also look at the current fill-up. What rates are they pricing at? How are they marketing? Are they filling up strong or not? We can start to analyze and see the effect of it. So it's there, it's known. What I don't want is that either they're in the middle of building so it's not on the market. So I have no idea how the market's reacting to it. I don't know what exactly the units are or it's going to be, meaning it's been permitted and approved. And I don't know. I can't see it. I don't know how it'll affect the asset. Then it's just a toss up. But if I'm buying a facility and a new asset is in fill up mode and that facility hasn't been affected and you're in good fill up mode on the other one, it's really strong and their rates are good. Well, then it's like, well, okay, the market's absorbed it. It's not having the negative effect and they're able to absorb it, obviously by the fill up rates and pricing of the units. That makes a lot of sense. AJ, you ready for the best ever lightning round? Oh, I'm ready. What is the best ever book you recently read? Best ever 
recently. So, um, recently. so <laughs> recently. Holy cow, that's a tough question. I should have thought more about. I have a bunch I try to avid read, and there's a lot that I go back to. So I'm going to go back to this one, which is just the Warren Buffett way. And I did read it a month ago. I read it every year. And the new abridged version of the Warren Buffett way, I try to read just once a year. So it's one of my favorite books, and I just recently read it. And it's applicable always and a good reminder. What is your best ever way to give back? I give back to my church and a few charities like Chair of the Hope, which gives wheelchairs to people in third, fourth world countries that they literally don't have a way to be mobile. They're stuck in a bed in a hut or their family can't take care of them and they have no mobility. So they supply those countries with wheelchairs. They actually send them down to them and work hand in hand with the local municipalities to give out wheelchairs to people that don't have the ability to walk. That's awesome. AJ, on the properties that you have acquired, what is the biggest mistake you've made and the best ever lesson that resulted from it? How long do we got? Do we got a few hours here? I got a long list and I can go through if we want to go through my mistakes. All right. I got a good one for you. So our portfolio that we had built up just until four years ago, we did not syndicate. We had no investors on and it was over 1.5 million net rentable square feet, over 150 million worth of assets that were just me and my two partners, which was my brother-in-law and father, and we didn't have investors. And I decided to allow people to invest and to start syndications. Very opposite route that most people take, I know, and that had its unique learning curves. But we'd never lost a property. We're very confident, and I thought, not worried about this. We found a great underperforming value-add asset, which we purchased and we syndicated our first deal ever. Well, on this deal, we had a property inspection and the property had roof leaks that didn't get caught in inspection and they lied about leases. So we couldn't give rents. We had no leases and leaky roofs. And I've never had that happen on any property and I had both of those things happen on one property and it was the first one that I syndicated, of course. So that was not fun and egg in the face, embarrassing. But what is the lesson here? The lesson was twofold. Your due diligence process needs to be way more hands-on that a property inspector may pass it, but that didn't mean that the roofs didn't have problems. So we actually get a roofer to inspect roofs outside just a normal property inspector. And what is your best ever advice? Long-term, not short-term, meaning the short-term is meant for action. It is meant for execution, but the long-term is what should be meant for yielding results. I do not try to have my expectations on assets be forced in the short term and try to have it play out. Market cycles and investments take time and the good ones take time. So you need to have a good structure on the asset that allows you to go through different market cycles and different troubles for the asset to get to where you want it to be. So execute in the short term, but realize results in the long term and put a structure on it that allows you to do that. Not floating rates, not need to sell it, not a need to refinance within a short period of time that can get you into trouble. Last question, where can people get in touch with you? You can go to selfstorageincome.com. 
That has all our resources on storage, the podcast, my book. You can go to AJ Osborne at Instagram or just AJ Osborne Storage. You can search that and you're going to find more than you ever want to know anyways. But yeah, AJ Osborne Instagram or go to our sites. Those links are in the show notes. AJ, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this episode, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend you know we can add value to through our episode today. Thank you and have a best ever day. Thanks. Appreciate it. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the Best Ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.